0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to The Law Report. Damien Carrick with you. This week, the New South Wales Parliament is considering a bill which redefines a controversial defence in sexual assault trials.
2: It's a common sense question. Has the accused said something or done something to find out whether the complainant is consenting? So it's a basic matter of respect.
0: It may or may not have an impact on conviction rates, but it will have no impact on the rape myths that currently dominate the typical sexual assault trial in New South Wales.
3: One of the issues that may emerge from this is that it may mean there's going to be greater cross-examination of complainants about consent.
1: Under the Sexual Consent Reforms Bill, currently before the New South Wales Parliament, a complainant's silence or lack of resistance to sexual intercourse will no longer amount to reasonable grounds for an accused to believe that the complainant was consenting. To rely on this defence, an accused will have to show that they said or did something to ascertain consent New South Wales Attorney-General Mark Speakman says the catalyst for the bill is an extraordinary and brave young woman named Saxon Mullins.
2: Sometimes law reform has been a long-awaited process, but often it takes uh, someone's uh, terrible case to capture people's imagination and be the the trigger or the catalyst for action. So Saxon Mullins um, was a complainant who said that Luke Lazarus had sexually assaulted her in an alleyway behind a nightclub in King's Cross in Sydney. And his case was that the sexual intercourse was consensual. There ended up being two trials and two appeals that took place in 2015 and 2017. The first trial resulted in a conviction. Mr Lazarus appealed. The trial judge was held to have misdirected the jury. There was another trial, another appeal, and then eventually the court of criminal appeal said that a third trial would be oppressive. And the issue there was there appeared to be no dispute that in her own mind, Ms Mullins was not consenting. But Mr Lazarus uh, contended that because uh, Ms Mullins had not said stop or no, he said he had a reasonable belief or a genuine belief that uh, she was consenting. What we do know is that a freeze is a common response of someone who is sexually assaulted. And part of these reforms is to overcome that It's a kind of rape myth that um, if somebody doesn't physically resist, that they are consenting. So that's the catalyst for these reforms. I asked the Law Reform Commission to look at this whole area of consent. That took a couple of years. There was a very extensive consultation with all interested parties. They provided a report late last year which recommended a communicative model of consent law, recommended, among other things, that uh, there can't be consent unless the complainant had uh, said or done something to to indicate consent. It made 44 recommendations. We've adopted all of those, but we've gone one step further, and that is requiring an accused, if they want to establish reasonable grounds for belief, to have uh, said something or done something in most circumstances.
1: How does this bill before Parliament change the law around the reasonable grounds for an accused to believe that a complainant is consenting to sex and therefore can rely on that defence?
2: So, unless the accused has a mental health issue or a cognitive impairment, to establish a reasonable belief, they will have to have said something or done something to ascertain the complainant's consent. Now, this is not overly prescriptive, uh, it's not a particular form of contract or videotaping consent, but it's a common sense question. Has the accused said something? or done something to find out whether the complainant is consenting. So it's a basic matter of respect and common sense.
1: This would effectively get rid of the defence that Luke Lazarus relied upon in the prosecution for the rape of um, Saxon Mullins?
2: It would mean that um, where where a complainant is, has frozen and not said something or done something, then there is no consent in those circumstances. And it. Used, has not said something or done something to ascertain consent, then they can't establish reasonable grounds or reasonable belief. But probably more important than increasing the rate of prosecutions is, is driving some cultural change. We've seen horrendous stories. Um, Chanel Contos, for example, has collated from uh, schoolgirls and, and young women about uh, a lack of respect and a lack of common sense and um, young men not asking not inquiring whether the other party to the sexual activity is consenting. So as much as anything, this is about driving cultural change and a greater sense of respect and common sense in sexual activity. It's not about the state interfering in the bedroom or snooping on people's private activity. People are free to engage in sexual activity if if they are adults, but it's making sure that they are consenting. It's free and voluntary choice, but we want to make sure that our laws reflect community attitudes and do reflect the notion that um, when someone engages in sexual activity, they are doing so freely and voluntarily.
1: Does this reverse the onus of proof and in doing so undermine the presumption of innocence? I mean, is there now an onus on the accused to establish that they ascertained consent and, and everything now rests on their shoulders?
2: A few people have peddled a myth that somehow this reverses the onus of proof and undermines the presumption of innocence. That is certainly not the case. The Crown will have to prove all elements of an offence beyond reasonable doubt to get a conviction. So they will have to prove that sexual intercourse took place, that there was no consent by the complainant, and that the accused had the requisite mental element, either actual knowledge, recklessness, or no reasonable belief. So all that will still have to be proved beyond reasonable doubt.
1: Attorney-General, in a sexual encounter, there are often multiple escalating stages and, and multiple sexual acts. And criminal defence barristers have said that, look, this law could require an accused to, to take reasonable steps to ensure that the other person is consenting to each and every sexual act. And, and it will be difficult to determine when one sexual act ends and, and another begins. And how do you ascertain that, that obtaining of consent in that, in that what is a fluid, dynamic exchange?
2: So it's a common sense approach that uh, needs to be taken. Uh, Consent can be to a continuum of sexual activity and I wouldn't expect the courts to somehow subdivide a a whole continuum of say foreplay into infinitesimal parts and require uh, fresh consent on each and every occasion. Consent has to subsist at the time of sexual activity. Consent to that sexual activity has to subsist at the time of that sexual activity, but it doesn't have to be given at that very moment. There could be uh, subsisting consent to a variety of sexual activity that means that there is no uh, sexual assault.
1: Consensual sexual intercourse frequently occurs without words being said, particularly in long-term committed relationships and, and marriages, but in all, in, in many forms of relationships, and these proposed reforms appear to consider that such instances of sexual activity could be non-consensual and therefore criminal.
2: It gets back to very basic concepts of common sense and respect. There is no particular prescription of the words that have to be used to indicate consent or to inquire whether the complainant is consenting. It can be by gestures or doing something or saying something. So it is very much a common sense approach and uh, physical gestures uh, can communicate consent.
1: Attorney General, similar reforms have been introduced in other jurisdictions, I believe. I think in Tasmania, perhaps in 2004, and I think there are similar laws operating in in Canada. How have they operated? Have they led to an increase in convictions?
2: The Tasmanian law is a little bit different from what we're proposing in New South Wales in that it does put an evidentiary onus on the accused to lead some evidence about what they said or did, rather than the onus on the Crown to show that nothing was said or done. The Law Reform Commission looked at the Tasmanian experience. It also looked at Canada. It didn't point to any differences in conviction rates, but it did note uh, some criticisms of how those laws had been implemented and a, a lack of judicial education, a lack of lawyer education. So, that education piece is certainly a very important part of these reforms. The Law Reform Commission recommended, educating judges, lawyers, police, and so on about the reforms. That's what the government intends to do. And we intend to go wider than that and have a a consent campaign over the next 18 months or so, again, to drive cultural change and respect.
1: Coming back to Saxon Mullins, she's spoken about how the trial process itself was Harrowing and traumatising. You know, complainants are are often subject to aggressive, lengthy cross examination by defence barristers. We have a tough adversarial system and it's very harrowing. Are you addressing those sorts of issues about the way that trials run and the experience of complainants in that process?
2: Part of the work we'll be doing will be a research project of the experience of victims, survivors, and complainants in the criminal justice system from the very moment they make a complaint to police to the end of the process if there's a conviction to um, what happens upon sentence. So we will continue to look at court processes.
1: An accused, of course, has the right to test the assertions of a complainant in a trial. Uh, but, but how that is done is the very important question.
2: Well, that's right. And uh, given the high stakes, the accused is entitled to test the evidence. We have a number of limitations on that in New South Wales. Uh, there are limitations on the extent to which a complainant can be cross-examined about their sexual reputation and sexual uh, history, for example. We have closed courts. We have uh, suppression of the names of complainants to protect their privacy. We often have, will have evidence given by audiovisual links. If for,
1: it, for adults as well as children?
2: Commonly. If there is a um, trial that uh, is aborted or uh, overturned on appeal and the complainant uh, is required to give their evidence again, then there can be an audiovisual playing of their previous evidence rather than them having to give the evidence uh, all over again to avoid retraumatization. We are looking at uh, further expanding the use of uh, replaying that kind of evidence. but. Like anything in criminal justice, we have to balance the interests of victims and complainants on the one hand with the rights of accused to test the evidence and rely on their presumption of innocence on the other hand.
1: New South Wales Attorney-General Mark Speakman, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report.
2: Thanks very much, Damien.
1: You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime, via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. UNSW Law Professor Annie Cossens is one of Australia's preeminent experts on law reform in the area of sexual assault. Professor Cossons, do you welcome the changes to the law which are currently before the New South Wales Parliament?
0: I've been a supporter of the legislation since its inception but I also recognise that it will probably have a limited impact on how the complainant is treated during the trial. It may or may not have an impact on conviction rates, but I'm more concerned about the fact that it will have no impact on the rape myths that currently dominate the typical sexual assault trial in New South Wales.
1: What do you think these rape rape myths are that, that you have such concerns about?
0: And what I mean by rape myths are a whole lot of common stereotypes that are ingrained culturally. Things like the abnormality of delayed complaint. That if someone was sexually assaulted, they would go to the police straight away. That if someone was sexually assaulted, they would physically resist. They would fight off their attacker. Other rape myths are that uh, people complain about being sexually assaulted because of revenge or, or wanting monetary compensation. Sometimes inconsistencies in evidence are used as evidence of lying, whereas we know that inconsistencies in evidence arise from confusion and trauma. And if a complainant is not visibly distressed, either at the time of the alleged sexual assault or during giving evidence, that's also considered to be evidence of an abnormal rape victim.
1: In addition to the changes to the Crimes Act, there are accompanying proposed changes to the Criminal Procedures Act of New South Wales, specifically a set of directions to the jury around consent. Essentially, they are, you know, circumstances in which uh, non-consensual sexual activity can occur and pointing out that they can be in every form of relationship, including a marriage. uh, Responses to non-consensual activity, which can include freezing and not saying anything. And then also, and why people should ignore issues around uh, the the appearance or behaviour of a complainant, you know, their clothing, their alcohol consumption, what have you. And also, that complainants will have different responses to giving evidence. Some will show obvious signs of trauma and distress, others won't, and and that doesn't mean they're lying. Those sets of directions which are going to be included in the Criminal Procedure Act, surely they'll have a really big impact in, in knocking over some of these stereotypes or assumptions.
0: I can understand why you would think that. But first of all, the directions aren't mandatory, so they will not be given in every trial. The other problem is that there's evidence that shows that jurors make up their minds way, way, way before the end of the trial when jury directions are given. There's also some good evidence from an English study that showed absolutely no link between the sorts of directions that you're talking about and conviction rates. And the other important thing is that Defence Council know what these directions are. So they craft their opening and closing addresses and their cross-examination questions to directly counteract the impact of the direction. So the evidence, I think, is that the impact of judicial directions of the type that you explained are weak.
1: There is a view that the changes in the test, in the legislation and also the addition of these directions, it shifts the focus of the trial from the actions of the complainant and why the accused interpreted those actions in a particular way or why they're saying that they processed them in a certain way and instead focuses the attention of the court on the actions and the thinking of the accused and that's a good thing. Yes,
0: that is a good thing. But remember, the defendant doesn't have to give evidence and most defendants in sexual assault trials do not give evidence. So the, the whole focus on the trial necessarily is on the complainant because she or he remains the prosecution's chief witness.
1: You maintain that what needs to be done is to have what you you describe as a trauma-centred approach in our courts and our justice system?
0: Because we know that there are numerous ways in which the adversarial trial is known to re-traumatise complainants. The specific reforms that could address the issue of re-traumatisation is to have a pre-trial preparation of defence questions, which are vetted by trial judges. This is presently done in England and Wales, for example, in child sexual assault trials, but there's no reason why we can't do that for all sexual assault trials. We would need time-limited cross-examination. We would need a ban on multiple counsel cross-examining complainants, which can go over a couple of days if it's permitted. And then, of course, I think there would have to be a legislated a list of prohibited questions, that is, that prevent questions based on rape myths being introduced into the courtroom.
1: What kinds of questions?
0: Questions that would focus on her style of dress, for example, questions about her so-called flirtatious behaviour, because you can interpret anything as flirtatious behaviour. Questions about her voluntary consumption of alcohol or drugs, because that's something that comes up in the majority of trials, that she was drunk that she led the the defendant on. Questions about desire for victims' compensation. Questions about delayed complaint or revenge on the part of the complainant.
1: I think um, the argument from defence lawyers would be that, you know, you need to have a robust testing of the evidence if you're going to establish beyond reasonable doubt if, if an accused is guilty. And some of those issues that you've mentioned may well go to
0: those issues. I totally reject that assertion on the part of Defence counsel. They always say that, but the evidence shows there's dozens of studies that shows that cross-examination questions, leading, confusing questions, actually have the opposite effect. They produce inaccurate answers. So we're not getting the best evidence from complainants who are re-traumatised, confused. They don't understand the legal terminology, the way questions are phrased. They're phrased in ways, and they have things like double, triple negatives, three or four propositions encased in the one question. The whole aim of cross-examination is not to test the evidence even though defence lawyers say that, it is to confuse the complainant and to get her to either retract her evidence or to produce inconsistencies, thereby suggesting that she's lying.
1: From what you're telling me, I think you're suggesting that judges play a very central role in recalibrating trials in the way you're hoping will happen. They need to sort of have a very kind of active, interventionist, proactive role here. Is that what you're suggesting? And is that the main focus maybe of what you would regard as meaningful positive change?
0: Yes, they would be central to these types of reforms and probably about time, I think.
1: UNSW Professor Annie Cussens, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report.
0: That's a pleasure. Thanks, Damien. <music>
1: This is The Law Report on ABC Radio National and, of course, you can subscribe to the program on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now to a defence lawyer perspective on these issues. Barrister Greg Barnes SC is based in Hobart and Melbourne. He's the spokesperson for the Australian Lawyers' Alliance on Criminal Justice Issues. So what does he think of the New South Wales Affirmative Consent Bill?
3: I'm not sure it's going to have a great impact A similar law was passed in Tasmania in 2004, and in looking at that and the way in which that's worked and and discussing it with colleagues who are constantly in the criminal courts here, there hasn't been a a really much use of the affirmative consent model because most cases, not all, but most cases involve some form of verbalising or physical activity which are said to convey consent. That, of course, is arguable in many cases, but there are very, very few cases where a person is completely passive and where nothing is said. There are some cases, but they're few and far between. But having said that, this law spells out in, in a highly detailed way what is consent and what is not consent. If it has an educative effect in the community, then that's good and we should encourage it. But in terms of whether or not it will make any real difference to, one, the number of convictions or, two, the number of people coming forward, I think that's very much something which we'll see or not see. But you know, if you look at Tasmanian experience, uh, it hasn't made any real difference.
1: You're saying that the Luke Lazarus, Saxon Mullins scenario, which was the the catalyst for the New South Wales reforms, that's not such a a widespread or common scenario?
3: Look, I can't speak for other jurisdictions around Australia, but certainly my experience in having done cases in Victoria and also in Tasmania is that, and talking to colleagues, most of the cases involve a dispute about whether or not there was consent in terms of what the parties have said and done, one in the lead up to and, and during the act of the sexual penetration, rather than being cases where there's nothing said between the parties and uh, a sort of passivity on the part of both parties in terms of that issue. Now, that's not to say that those cases don't happen and that those cases ought not be dealt with by the courts. It's really just to say is the real benefit of this particular reform, the fact that it spells out in in graphic detail and explicit detail in this new section 61HJ, the circumstances in which there's no consent, because that clause in the bill has a very educative effect because it it sets out uh, in chapter and verse what people can regard as consent and not consent.
1: And that section says, look, you need to ascertain consent if you're going to rely on on, on the defence of a reasonable belief. One of the issues that may emerge from this is that it may mean there's going to be greater
3: cross-examination of complainants about that particular issue. If it's said that the person hasn't said or done anything to communicate consent, and then, of course, uh, as as you've said, that uh, it's up to the defence to really turn that issue around, that's probably going to lead to cross-examination, fairly detailed cross-examination on that particular issue, because no doubt instructions will be given that, oh, look, there was communication, uh, we kissed, or there'll be a whole range of issues which will then need to be explored and
1: cross-examined upon. Presumably, though, that those sorts of issues are, you know, canvassed in enormous detail already. Yeah, correct. But if it's said that there's some
3: onus on an accused now to say that uh, they took steps To ensure that there was consent, then of course there's going to have to be cross examination about that particular issue so that the defence counsel can go to the jury and say, well, look, on this issue of consent, we did in fact take these steps and they were, you know, steps that were reasonable in the circumstances.
1: So they're also, in addition to the changes to, to the Crimes Act, there are also uh, accompanying changes to the, the Civil Procedure Act, which spell out a, a set of directions to give to a jury. How important do you think those jury directions will be? Well,
3: I think they're obviously really important and having a look at them, they're all set out in fairly short form here, obviously, in the section, but they'll need to be explained by judges. Having said that, It's going to be important for judges to be able to provide these directions in a way that doesn't make them too complex for people. That's a challenge and has been a challenge in relation to sexual assault cases for some time now as the law has grown more complex.
1: I've been speaking with uh, UNSW Professor Annie Cossens, who's very concerned about the impact of the trial process on complainants. And and she's somewhat dubious about whether these directions to a jury around consent will have an impact because she she says they have to be looked at in the the broader context of of trials and what takes place in trials. And she says the judges really need to intervene more to ensure that Defence counsel don't harass and intimidate witnesses in the witness box. What do you say to that assertion?
3: It's often made that assertion. My experience has been that a smart counsel don't do it. There's nothing that turns people off more in this day and age than for some counsel to harass a witness. And judges do intervene. I've seen them in But uh, of course, it's important that uh, complainants be respected and uh, there's respect given to their evidence. And good counsel do that.
1: Clearly, some council or many council don't.
3: Well, some council don't, but it's not a perfect system, Damien. Of course, some council won't. And I have seen judges intervene. In
1: England and Wales, I'm told that uh, judges actually vet questions put to young complainants. And Annie Carson says this should be adopted for all complainants in, in sexual assault trials. And that way you can weed out some of the kind of uh, harassing, intimidating questions which are designed to reinforce rape myths.
3: Well, again, I'm sceptical about that. What if a person gives evidence which is contrary to what you thought they were going to give? Do we then have to stop the trial and you have to write out a series of questions that you can then ask to follow that particular lead? It's unworkable. The real issue is ensuring a culture of respect in the court. And uh, there ought not be bullying and harassment by any party. It doesn't matter whether you're counsel, whether you're a judge, a witness, it doesn't matter.
1: Should there be tighter guidelines about what kinds of questions defence counsel c- can ask around, for instance, what, what a woman was wearing or their, their alcohol or drug consumption?
3: Well, the difficulty with guidelines is that. And there already are, uh, Damien. there has been large-scale reform in this area. You don't get away with asking the sort of questions about a person's prior sexual history that you used to, and nor should you. There are also restrictions on the sort of questions that can be asked about a a person's disposition in the lead-up to the alleged offence. We could look at guidelines, but again, they have to be tailored in such a way that they allow fairness to an accused. I think that's often forgotten in these cases, is that an accused person in these cases if found guilty, will lose their liberty for a long period of time. Fairness has to be accorded to them, in addition to fairness being accorded to complain. And I, mean, I know it's a conversation for another day, but you've got to look at whether or not the current system, with the high stakes involved for parties, is the best way to resolve these matters.
1: Barrister Greg Barnes, SC, a spokesperson for the Australian Lawyers' Alliance on Criminal Justice Issues. Thank you for speaking to the Law Report. Thanks, Damien. Now, if this program has raised any issues for you, at the Law Report website, we have listed a number of contacts to organisations that can provide support and information. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to sound engineer Ari Gross. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.